Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, we're going to talk about uh, sin and temptation. We're going to talk about uh, how Christians are to interact with sin and temptation in their own lives, how they're to interact with sin and temptation in the lives of people around us, people in our church, people in our family, people that we care about, how to you know, guard against sin and temptation, how to, uh, to mortify and kill sin, how to repent of sin. Um, how to forgive sin, right? and how to do all of that kind of functioning together as a family, as a corporate uh, body, an organism of, of you know, people that God has called together into a, a covenant community called a church to do together. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, then we'll get to work. It reads, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, ask you to come here. Uh, with us this morning. Please open our eyes to the truths in your word. Please help us to see them. Please help us to come under the authority of your word and to submit to it and to obey it. We pray, Lord, that we could be a people who uh, love your word and who trust it and who hold fast to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Chapter, chapter 17, verse 1, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. So Jesus starts by kind of dispensing with any sort of ambiguity, or maybe it is, maybe it's not, maybe it will, maybe it won't. The first thing Jesus says about sin and temptation is that it is coming. It will happen. It is inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So Christian, don't be naive, don't be foolish, don't proceed as if sin and temptation are not something that you have to worry about, right? Just because you're not tempted to sin right now doesn't mean that you won't be tempted to sin in the, in the future. In chapter 4 of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve and their, their episode, uh, their sons Cain and Abel, Cain, Cain basically is upset because Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is not. And God goes to Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. 
Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. You must rule over it. And the word crouching at your door, um, you know, kind of conjures the, the image of, you know, a, a predatory animal, right? A, a, a lion or a tiger laying in wait and ready to, ready to pounce, ready to kill and ready, ready to destroy. And so, you know, God is saying, if you're, if you're a human being living in a fallen world, then sin is like a a predatory animal stalking you, lying in wait for you, so be on guard against it. Be be vigilant again. I was I was going for a run one time and uh and when I when I go for a run I put headphones in, I'll listen to sermons or I'll listen to music or you know and just kind of zone out and kind of go into my own world. Um and so I was going for a run one time and I came up on a snake and I didn't notice that that I was a big it was taller than me. It was six, seven feet like total. And it was just kind of there coiled up in the side of the road. And I was just kind of running and looking around and just kind of in my own little world. And I I got way too close to this snake to where I was comfortable. And I saw it when I was, you know, I mean, it was right. I was, I was a step away from it. And I saw this snake and I, I jumped as high as I've ever jumped in my life. And, uh, and literally, I mean, just involuntarily, if you've ever Google, you should not now during the sermon, but later Google, Google what happens if you put a cucumber behind a cat. Uh, there's videos of cat. I guess they think it's a snake maybe, or they think it's something. If you, if you sneak a cucumber behind a cat and then video it, it will jump onto the top of the refrigerator. I mean, it will, it will freak out. That was me. So I see the snake and I jump and I freak out because I, I am, uh, you know, was surprised by something that is potentially very dangerous that was lying in wait. Right, that was like waiting, watching, anticipating the fact that I'm getting closer to it, and it was it was terrifying. And so, so God says to Cain, "Your job is not to uh, allow this dangerous animal that is sin and temptation. Uh, you know, it's crouching and waiting to devour. Waiting to you have to rule over it. You have to be aware of it. You have to anticipate it and know know and be be ready for it." It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in Luke 17 as well. So, so you, Christian, you have to know, you know, know when you are most likely to, to snap at your spouse, right, and, and, and lose your temper or use unkind words. Know, know when you are most likely to uh, become defensive and justify yourself and, and speak out of self-righteousness. Know when you're most tempted to you know, in the moment, out of embarrassment or whatever, uh, you know, tell, like, tell, like, be dishonest, tell a lie, or, or, you know, exhibit some sort of uh, sinful, uh, you know, pattern in your words, or know when you're most likely to look at inappropriate material on the, on the internet, right? Anticipate sin, anticipate temptation, be ready for it, be on guard against it, because it is sure to Come. That's Jesus' first words about sin and temptation. It is happening, so guard against it and be ready. But woe to the one through who they come. So temptation and sin are sure to come, but it's not this like defeatist, you know, woe is me. Uh, I guess I just can't, there's nothing that I can do about it. I am fate's fool. Sin and temptation are going to happen and I just nothing. He says, but, but, but woe to the one through who they come. So do not be an active agent in, uh, you know, in facilitating sin and temptation to come either to you, but specifically to people that are, uh, that are around you, right? Don't be the person that brings about temptation for other people. 
Because there's terrible, terrible judgment waiting for people who right, don't be the guy who uh, tells uh, you know, jokes that are inappropriate and, and causes other people to fall kind of down this same wormhole of, of inappropriate. Like don't, don't be a guy who leads other people into sin, and especially don't be someone who leads uh, people that are vulnerable or impressionable, little ones to sin. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and, and if he were cast into the sea, than if he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Little ones might mean children, right? I mean, literally uh, little children who are impressionable and vulnerable. If, if you, uh, as a parent or as someone who has an opportunity to influence a small child, lead them to sin instead of to righteousness, that's a terrible, terrible thing. It could be, it could be young believers, right? could be someone who is, who is young, new in their faith, and therefore is kind of taking in, you know, anything. That, if, you, if you teach false doctrine to a new, uh, young believer, Jesus says be, a millstone is a huge, hundreds of pounds, right? Like, like a, a boulder, a small boulder, essentially, that they would attach to the back of, uh, you know, animals, and they would kind of drag it over the harvest after it had been kind of collected and gathered into a pile for the purpose of, of milling it and grinding it and kind of getting access to the good crop that they wanted to take so that they could leave uh, everything else behind. So he says, you know, hundreds of pounds, like a huge millstone, a huge boulder, attach that to your neck, throw that into the bottom of the ocean, and you get sunk down to the bottom. I don't even like wearing a turtleneck because it kind of makes my neck feel a little you know, it kind of, kind of, you know, makes my neck feel a little bit claustrophobic. And Jesus says, if you are someone who, uh, you know, causes a child or a new believer to sin or to embrace false doctrine, this the the worst of possible fate is reserved for for you. God takes very seriously how His people, how Christians influence and and teach and mentor and help those who are impressionable, those who are vulnerable, those who are, um, you know, easily influenced by, by others. So Jesus says, uh, sin is real, temptation is real, it's sure to come, but woe to the one through whom it comes. Don't be the person who is uh, causing sin and temptation uh, to, to, you know, happen with, with other people. Then in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Note, notice, pay attention to yourself, not pay attention to yourself, singular, but pay attention to yourselves, plural, right? Jesus is, is kind of envisioning, Jesus is envisioning a community of people who are covenantally committed to one another, who have all professed faith to one another, and who have collectively affirmed one another's professions of faith, and who are now living out their Christian life together uh, in relationship. Jesus here is kind of baked into this one phrase, pay attention to yourselves, is Jesus' kind of vision for the local church. He's saying, if you're a Christian, it's not just your job to pay attention to yourself. It's not just to, your job to walk with God in and of yourself, to mortify sin in your own life all by yourself. It's your job to be a part of a church and to help that church become a place where believers overcome sin in their lives and to help that church be a place where people walk with God. Right? God's not only going to hold you accountable for how well you mortified sin in your own life yourself, God's going to hold you accountable for how the people around you mortified sin in their life, and he's going to hold you accountable for how you helped them to, to do so. Right? If you, 
you die and go to heaven and you say, God, I read my Bible and I prayed and I was careful to avoid sin, God is going to be equally concerned with how diligent you were to help your fellow church members read their Bible and pray and avoid sin in their, in their life. Pay attention to yourselves, plural. So now you're saying, all right, so we get it. Uh, sin and temptation are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were tied around his neck. Pay attention to your, so we get it. Uh, uh, we have responsibility as individuals, but also as part of a community to kill sin in our lives, to help other people kill sin in their lives, not to be a, a venue through which temptation comes into other people's lives, but specifically, how do we do it? What are the practical steps that are involved in uh, you know, mortifying sin and encouraging righteousness in our lives and in those uh, around us? And Jesus outlines those in verses uh, 3 and 4. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. It's as simple as, simple as that. If you, if you have a fellow Christian in your life, right, and you see them in sin, uh, you see them in, in sin or in folly, or, or you, know, that you see some way that their life could be improved, Right, some way that they could grow in Christian faithfulness, you owe it to them to go to them and to talk to them and to point it out to them. Not, not being combative, not being haughty, not uh, being proud, right? not, not saying, I am uh, better and smarter and more holy than you, and so you have to listen to me. Uh, if, if I want your opinion, I'll ask for it, but you have to do this because I said so. Rather, just this uh, a loving, gentle, humble, Confront, confronting or, or rebuking, right? I love you. I care about you. I've seen this particular thing in your life. And as a friend, as a, as a brother in Christ, I, as, as your advocate and as a partner in the gospel, someone who cares about your witness and how you are representing Christ to the people in your life, I want to bring this to your attention so that you can overcome it. All right. Imagine, imagine you had some glaring area in your life that was painfully obvious and just readily visible to everyone. Imagine that you, imagine your septic tank was overflowing at your house and it was like flowing, you know, sewage onto the street and onto everyone's property, all of the adjacent properties. You're like sewage is flowing all to their, their house and you, for whatever reason, didn't know. You just, maybe you went out of your house another way or you were, you know, off for the summer or something. And all your, all your neighbors are like driving by and thinking, man, this guy is a jerk. This guy is disgusting. This guy is gross. This is, you know, someone needs to do something. But then every time they saw you, they just smiled and waved and, you know, didn't, didn't address it, didn't acknowledge. And then, and then even worse, so they smile and wave and ignore this like glaring area that needs to be addressed in your life and then go home and think, man, I'm such a godly person for having done that. I... Look how patient I am. Look how long-suffering I am. Look how willing I am to bear with other people's shortcomings and their, and their faults, and I'm never going to do the hard work of going to them and telling them. Or, or, then, or behind your back, they're texting one another and saying, that guy's such a jerk, I can't believe he wouldn't fix that, you know, that's gross, whatever, right? You, you don't want a neighbor to smile and wave, and you want a neighbor that would summon the courage to come to your house and say, your, your uh, septic tank is overflowing, and it's, it's gross, and it's, it's you know, ruining the entire... Na- Here's the phone number of the utility company that can come and fix it. You can stay at my house between now or whatever, right? Jesus says, be that person, the person who summons the courage to go to someone and confront them and even rebuke them if necessary, 
because that's the most loving thing that you can do. That's the thing that will help them grow, right? If you uh, don't, don't delude yourself into thinking that the most holy thing is to let sin run rampant in the lives of people around you and you just remain silent doing nothing about it. That's not loving. That is, actually, that, that is un- unloving, right? In the name of being loving and gracious, I'm going to refuse to address sin. What Jesus is saying is in the name of um, the purity of the church and in the name of your love of that person, you should go to them and address them boldly with courage. You should confront and, and rebuke. But it's not just if your brother sins, rebuke, because that, that leaves the, you know, the, that, that kind of conjures the image, all right, I'm going to go to this person. I'm going to, I'm going to tell them that they uh, you know, are impatient. I'm going to tell them that they, this particular you know, um, besetting sin that they, that they have kind of demonstrated over time, and you're almost like thinking, all right, it's going to, it's going to devolve. They're going to, they're going to be defensive. They're going to be self-righteous, and I need, to have, I need to anticipate their rebuttal, and I need to have a response for it. I need to win the argument. I need to make sure that they know that I'm right and they're wrong. Right, you'll kind of go into it thinking, uh, "I'm not looking. I'm not look. I'm not expecting them to repent, and I am not prepared to forgive. I'm expecting an argument, and I'm preparing to win it." Jesus says, "If your brother sins, rebuke him, but if he repents, forgive him. If he sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, then forgive him." If you're if you're going to go and confront someone about their sin, then you have to be ready to forgive them if they repent, because that's the whole purpose of the whole thing. It's not to win an argument. It's not to make them stop doing something that you found annoying so that your life can be more comfortable. It's so that you can be reconciled and so that you can live in Christian unity and Christian holiness with your neighbors, with your fellow church members. And not even just once, but over and over and over. So you have to be, you have to be prepared emotionally. You have to be ready and prepared to forgive not just once, but if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you have to forgive. And you say, Jesus, that's, that's absurd. If, if, someone, if someone literally does the same thing to me seven times over and over, and, and just every, every time after it comes and says, I repent, that's, that's absurd, that's excessive, that's enabling, right? That's, that's uh, you know, if, if I forgive someone over and over like that, they'll never learn their, their lesson. And Jesus says, that, all right, well, I'm not asking you to, to make sure that they learn their lesson. I'm telling you to confront, to, to be bold and courageous and confront when necessary, to be humble and loving and gracious and forgive when people repent, And even if they sin again and repent again over and over, I'm asking you to continue forgiving, right? I'll teach the lessons as I see fit. Which is is tough. This is is, uh, tough sledding for, for the Christian life, right? Because uh, to, 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 our instinct, our, our preference, what we would rather do is, is skip out on both of these. I don't want to have to summon the courage to go confront someone when they are in sin, and I also don't want to have to summon the strength to forgive someone. I would rather just remain in silence and then, and then be angry at them forever. 
I would rather hold a grudge forever. I don't want to go talk to them because if I go talk to them, I run the risk that they might repent. And if they repent, then I'm going to have to forgive them. And then I'm going to have to swallow my pride and I'm going to have to be reconciled with them. And what my, what my sinful flesh wants to do is hold a grudge and be angry forever and ever. That's what our flesh wants to do. And Jesus says, no, if you, if you are, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, even if it happens over and over again, which is hard. And that's why the apostles, that's why the disciples respond how they do in verse 5. Jesus, we can't do that. That's too hard. That is, that is too high of a bar for you to set. That is beyond our capacity. We don't have it in us to do that. If we're going to do what you just instructed us to do, if we're going to forgive, if we're going to confront, and if we're going to mortify sin the way you're telling us to, we need you to increase our faith. And Jesus responds, uh, Jesus responds, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus is saying, you're misunderstanding the nature of, of faith, and, and how, you're misunderstanding the nature of the efficacy of, of faith, right? You're, you, have, you are overestimating the strength of your faith. You're overestimating uh, how you feel uh, in your faith, and you are underestimating the object of your faith. Right? The reality is, I have called you as Christians to live this life of, of holiness, but also unity and love of neighbor. I've called you to, to um, confront your brother when he sins against you, but I've also called you to forgive him when he repents. I've called you to, one elder put it this way, I've called you to be a community of people who are both radically committed to holiness and radically committed to forgiveness. Right? We often fall short in both regards. We tend to trivialize sins against a holy God that we and our fellow believers commit, while at the same time magnifying any sins that people may have committed against us. So Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to be radically committed to holiness and confront when necessary. I'm calling you to be radically committed to forgiveness. So don't hold grudges and don't keep record of wrongs. I'm calling you to do all of, all of that. And, and, and then, of course, embedded into that, embedded into this radical commitment to holiness and radical commitment to forgiveness is, that, is how we are supposed to respond when someone comes and confronts us. Right? So when someone comes and confronts us, embedded into these texts means that if someone comes to you and says, hey, I've noticed a sin pattern in your life, I'd like to address it, I'd like to, to point out a way that you can grow, we, you receive it, and you listen to it, and you hear, and you don't object, and you don't say, well, the re- that doesn't apply to me because of this thing, or, well, I, don't, I shouldn't have to repent until this person does X, Y, and Z to my satisfaction First, or you don't have any right to tell me what to do because you have this thing wrong. And you're right. If someone comes to you and confronts you, rebukes you, you receive it, you listen with humility, and then and then you repent. Right? You actually turn from your sin and you actually uh, you know apologize and repent and be reconciled to it. So all of that, this big, huge, like uh, you know, just massive, uh, you know. Commands of Jesus to confront and forgive and to hear and listen and to repent. And Jesus says, you can't do it. Uh, you, you rightly understand that you can't do it, but instead of the, the, the way to do it is not to increase your faith as if uh, you know, faith is some sort of... We're, we're Protestants, right? We believe in the doctrine of justification. We, we love faith here. 
right? We love justification by faith. We as Christians are saved not by virtue of what we do, not our works that we kind of bring to God as, as meritorious. God, we want you to love us. We want you to accept us on the basis of who we are and what we've done. We're Protestants. We believe in justification by faith. We're saved by Jesus and who, who he is, what he has done, and our trusting in him. But the doctrine of justification by faith does not uh, imply that that you're only saved if you have a faith that is super strong and a faith that never wavers. It doesn't mean that you're saved by the strength of your faith. The doctrine of justification by faith, which we hold to, uh, doesn't say that you're saved by the strength of your faith. It means that you're saved by the object of your faith, which is why Jesus doesn't say, Oh, Lord, increase our faith. Sure, let me do that because how strong your faith is and how, how strong you feel deep in, in, in your bones is the determining factor of whether or not you're saved and whether or not you can be empowered to live a godly Christian life. He says you don't need, a, you don't need to have your faith increased. You just need a little bit of faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted. You need a little tiny bit of faith, but it's in the right thing. It's in the right person. The strength of our faith is, is greatly overrated. The object, right, if you're flying in an airplane and it's, it's not structurally sound, right, it's held together by duct tape, the pilot's drunk, he's, you know, about to pass out, in a nosedive, the engine's on fire, you're going to crash into a mountain, and you're sitting there thinking, I am absolutely certain that this plane is going to land safely. I know it, right? I name it and I claim it. I, I feel it in my bosom that we are going to land safely and no one on this plane has anything to worry about. That doesn't affect whether or not the plane is going to land safely. None of that, what, what does affect whether the plane will land safely is the, the structural integrity of the plane and the competence and the presence of the pilot who is flying it, not your confidence, not your subjective feelings in them. You can have total certainty that the plane is going to crash, total certainty that the plane is going to land safely and still crash and die. Conversely, if the plane is safe, if it was made safely with good components and, and the pilot knows what he's doing, you could be in seat 36D freaking out, having a panic attack, right? Hyperventilate, puking into the little vomit bag that they have in the seat in front of you. You could be totally sure, 100% positive that you know the plane is going to crash, but if the plane is safe and if the pilot is competent, then regardless of whether your faith wavers, regardless of whether you're experiencing doubt, you're going to be safe. Jesus is saying it's not the amount of faith that you have. It's not the subjective feelings that you have with respect to your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's, it's, so Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, the eternal Son of God, right? The perfect, sinless substitute for sinners who came to us, died in our place, saved us from our sin, satisfied the wrath of God, rose in victory over Satan and sin and death, goes to the right hand of the Father, intercedes on our behalf, and ensures that we are never cast out of God's presence. That's the, that's the object of our faith. So the strength of our faith is not what saves us. The object of our faith is what saves us. 
Jesus says, if you have a, a tiny mustard seed, if you're just holding on, like a, 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 just a little tiny bit, if, but if you're trusting in me, then I will send my Holy Spirit to live inside of you to help you uh, obey all the commands that I just gave you about repenting and forgiving and reconciling and confronting and rebuking and being hum, all of these things that are too hard for you to do. It, it, I will send my Holy Spirit to help. If you're having difficulty mortifying sin in your life, I'll send my Holy Spirit to help. If you're having difficulty loving your neighbor, I'll send my Holy Spirit to help. If you're having difficulty confronting someone who needs confronting, I'll send my Holy Spirit to help you, right? Difficulty receiving a loving rebuke from a friend. Difficulty, uh, you know, forgiving someone who keeps sinning against you in the same way over and over. All of these things that sound impossible, they, they are impossible in and of your own strength, but trust in me, place your faith in me, the object of your faith, and I will help you to live them out. The Holy Spirit will help you to live the perfect life of Jesus through your own life, through your own body. Which brings us to the last uh, couple of verses, starting in verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come into the, in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. What's going on here? What, what, is, what is Jesus communicating? What is he trying to say in this uh, passage right here? Right? He's just laid out this incredibly difficult, incredibly high, like, like high-reaching, a high bar for the Christian life. I want you to forgive in this way and repent in this way, and I want you to be aware of sin and temptation. I want you to overcome it, and you're going to need the Holy Spirit to do it. He's laid out this really difficult vision for the Christian life. And apparently Jesus anticipates that some of his hearers are going to hear this and think, that is not for me. Like that, that I am a Christian, but that is not necessarily what, what is in store for me. Either, either I don't have to do it, and therefore I don't need to concern myself with it, or if I try and do, do it or do a part of it, then I should, you know, I should be celebrated. I, I'm going to pull a muscle patting myself on the back because of how great of a Christian I, I am, right? right? Jesus is saying, if you, if you hear this, all of this like, incredibly difficult vision of the Christian life of repenting and forgiving and confronting and killing sin, and you think, I didn't sign up for that, right? I, that is graduate level Christianity. I am in, I'm in freshman Christianity 101, right? I, I signed up for the Christianity where you just say you're a Christian and you check a box and when the survey comes in the mail, you say, that's, yep, I identify, that's who I am. And then I live the same that I've always lived. And Jesus has no claim on my life and I don't want to have to do anything that I don't want to do. That's the Christianity I signed up for, right? Killing sin, living in community with a local church where people have access to my life and we walk with God together. I don't want to have to do all that. Jesus says, if that's your, if that's your initial response when you, when you hear this, or to the guy who says, uh, look, look what I did, right? Look, look, look what, I mean, I, I have, I have gone above and beyond, right? I have, uh, you know, made efforts to, uh, 
curtail this particular sin, or I might be neglecting this part of the law, but at least I'm trying with this part of the law over here, and now I want to be celebrated, right? God is so lucky to have me on his team. God, you can thank me later because of how awesome I am. I'm going to go grab a beer. I'm going to watch a game because of how great I am. God is saying, that's not how the Christian life works, right? The, the, you, if, you, um, if you make an effort to uh, kill sin, if you make an effort to be a faithful church member and to help other people live in unity and in righteousness, you're not going above and beyond. You're doing exactly what God has told you to do. Jesus is pushing back against this tendency for us to be impressed with ourselves and to, be, and to, to you know, congratulate ourselves and to think that we are awesome and to think that everyone owes us some sort of celebration for how good we are. Right? All of us who have this tendency to minimize our shortcomings, sweep them under the rug, pretend like they don't exist, and then celebrate and broadcast the ways where we think that we are strong. Right? Look at me. Look how great I am. And Jesus says, you, you just did what I told you to do. You just, like, if, you're, if you're living a godly Christian life, that's not going above and beyond. That's not doing something that you weren't required to do. That's simply, do, that's, that is living in response to the truth of the gospel, right? If Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really is God, he really became a person, he really lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, he really died an awful death in your place as your sacrifice to pay for your sin, he really offers us salvation freely, all we have to do is receive it and accept it, and he really secures our salvation for all of eternity so that we can never be lost. If all those things are really true, then Jesus can ask us anything he wants, he can demand of us anything that he wants. And our obeying him is not going above and beyond. Our obeying him is doing exactly what we are required to do. So we shouldn't have too high of a view of ourselves. We shouldn't flatter ourselves. And we shouldn't expect to be uh, celebrated as some sort of remarkably uh, you know, holy, godly person. We're simply living the life that Jesus has called us to live in response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So Luke 17, verses 1 through 10, Jesus says, uh, temptation is coming. Temptation is real. It's coming. Be aware of it. Fight against it. Help people around you to fight against sin. Help them to grow as Christians. If someone rebukes you, receive it and listen and repent. If someone sins against you, confront them. If they repent, forgive them. Right? Don't try to do any of this in your own power. Do it by trusting in Jesus. Do it by allowing the Holy Spirit to come into your life and to empower you. And finally, recognize that this is the life of costly Christian discipleship that Jesus has called you to. It's not easy. It wasn't meant to be easy. But Jesus is the King. And it's what Jesus has called us to. We owe Him everything. His Word and His will are the final authority in our lives, not our Word and not our will. Uh, responsibility, our calling as a church this morning is to recognize that together and then to respond, uh, right? To respond by closing in prayer, to respond by singing to Jesus and thanking him for who he is, what he's done for us, and by resolving to walk with him in repentance and faith and holiness and humility and trust and obedience and, and godliness. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that you have saved us from our sin. We thank you that you have come to us, died in our place, satisfied the wrath of God for us so that we could be reconciled to God and be with you forever. Lord Jesus, we pray that we could respond with radical obedience and faith, that we could kill sin in our lives, that we could help one another to kill sin in their lives. We pray that we could trust in the Holy Spirit to empower us for that task, knowing that it is what you, our King, has called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.